Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Dispatch Podcast. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, as always, joined by my faithful co-host, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. Chuck, what's going on? How are you? I'm fine. I'm actually feeling pretty well. I, I'm shocked to realize that it's only 10 days before Labor Day. I don't know what happened to the summer, but I guess I'll get over it. <laughs> I'm excited, man. I want the cold back. I was not made for this hellish weather that I live through. Oh, well. we had, we've had some great summer weather here. We've not had that, that Central California special. <laughs> you have my empathy. See, where you are, you go out on your balcony and you have a nice cocktail. Here, you drink so you can forget how hot it is. And I just, uh, I can't, can't abide that anymore. <laughs> so, isn't it, but isn't it a dry heat? Like a tandoori <laughs> oven? <laughs> you know, um, dry heat tends to give me a sweaty back. And therefore, I find that, um, that point of view erroneous. In any case... Enough about uh, the the hellish weather in California. Let's talk about uh, a couple new stories, Chuck. We've got uh, one from our colleague, Dr. Henry Miller, and uh, I want to say an almost cartoonish story from Dr. Josh Blue, <laughs> which we'll get yeah. into in a minute. Uh, this this first story, though, from uh, from Dr. Miller is called "A New COVID Surge Has Begun." The timing is bad. So, as you may have uh, heard in the news, everybody. There is a growing concern about uh, new COVID variants and uh, the possibility of masking again. And, you know, so basically we're starting to have some of the same conversations we really haven't had since I want to say 2021 or so, Chuck. Um, True. But Henry, Henry makes the point that as this COVID surge appears to be underway, um, the country is not prepared. And it seems that we're more or less unwilling to gear up for it. And uh, I, I'm sure we've all heard about, you know, uh, pandemic fatigue and there's deep skepticism of public health institutions. And it, it just sort of seems people are just kind of over the whole pandemic cycle of fear, whatever you want to call it. And even the federal government in May lifted the state of emergency. So, I mean, if that's not a clear admission that, you know, we're not treating this as a pandemic anymore as a society, I think, I think that's it. So Henry uh, goes on, he says, there's uh, new variants continuing to evolve. We're not sure how serious they're going to be. They seem to spread reasonably well, but we don't know how, how dangerous they're going to be. And again, we're reading tea leaves is one of the phrases he uses. No one can predict the future. It's just not possible. Um, but, but let's start there, Chuck. I mean, what's your take on, on, on Henry's story? And then just overall, are, are you concerned uh, about I'm COVID the way you were two years ago? No, no. And, and I, I think that once we get into talking a little bit about what um, Dr. Miller writes, we'll see that that's uh, more the case. There's no doubt that there are more cases being reported. There are increasing numbers of hospitalizations compared to our current baseline. But our current baseline is so much lower than it was a year or two ago um, that I, I think simply looking at a a statement that said there's been a 10% increase doesn't really give you uh, a good sense of what's going on numerically. And there's, again, there's evidence um, from the wastewater that um, the viral load within the population is increasing. And none of that should be a surprise. There's no reason to believe that after two or three years that COVID is now going to magically disappear. That's not 
what this kind of a virus does. But I, I do think that there's a lot of good practical evidence that um, the dance between the virus and the public has reached the point where there, it, we're getting to a, what I would describe as an equilibrium or, or an equipose. The, there are pressures upon the virus to mutate, which it more happily does. But at the same time, we have any number of medications and approaches to um, becoming ill with COVID that we didn't have two years ago. And, and I think that the, the other factor that makes a huge difference is I think that a large portion of the vulnerable were, were taken away in, in the pandemic and that there's a the population stock is sturdier uh, than it was when the when the pandemic began. So I'm not quite as concerned about it as Henry's been. I, I'm thinking this is just um, how COVID uh, continues to fester along. I started to see commentary from uh, news outlets I didn't expect it from. So this is, for example, from ABC. And uh, for us, it's today. And for everyone listening, this is uh, uh, August 25th. So this is as recent as it gets. So ABC points out um, that 97% of individuals in the U.S. over 16 years old have protective immunity, either through, uh, you know, the multiple rounds of vaccines they've received or prior infection or both. Um, And this is translated, as you alluded to a minute ago, into fewer hospitalizations. And then one other thing they point out that I think is important for some context is that um, hospitalizations have been on the rise in the last couple of weeks, um, but they are three times lower than the same time last year and six times lower than in 2021 after the first vaccines rolled out. So, I mean, not to... Not to put aside the seriousness of this, you know, if you're older and you have some kind of comorbidity, then yeah, you know, probably you probably should be somewhat concerned about this. Um, but overall, it seems that uh, we're we're doing pretty good here, Chuck. Am I misreading this somehow? No, I I, I think this this is how influenza looks, and this is how COVID nineteen looks. And while there will be some differences in the percentage problems, I think that. Um, the three years, as I said, has has created an equilibrium in that dance between the the public and, and the virus, and that this is this is what what herd immunity ultimately looks like. Now, Henry does make one point in here um, that I would put it under the rubric that somebody would put under the rubric of changing the goalposts. And Henry's point is is that while it very well may be that an acute infection with COVID has a less chance of causing you to be hospitalized or, or dying, that there is a significant risk of what is being termed long COVID. And that if you can avoid uh, a COVID infection, then you have a much better chance of avoiding uh, this long-term sequelae. Yeah, I've um, I, I have to be honest. I haven't followed the long COVID discussion very closely, and I've heard disputes back and forth about how serious it is and how how many people suffer from it. But Henry points out uh, he points to a quote in here. I'm trying to find it in the story, but it's something to the effect of you know these long COVID numbers are significant or they're you know uh, yes. 
awe-inspiring or something to that effect. Um, but he doesn't actually give the numbers. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can explain like, like how, how widespread is long COVID, how serious of a risk is it to. Well, see that, that, that gets into a whole nother issue. First of all, I don't think that there is a universal agreement among physicians as to what constitutes long COVID. It is at this point, uh, a syndrome, meaning it's a collection of symptoms. And depending upon which research paper you look at, um, the symptoms may vary widely. Um, what seems to be um, persistent is um, people that have developed uh, kind of a chronic fatigue associated with it, um, a little bit of a what they're describing as a brain fog, maybe some um, simple cognitive uh, changes. But there's no hard and fast data saying, uh, this is the pathognomonic sign this is the blood test that says you have long COVID. So the numbers are very um, uncertain, but somewhere in the range of 5 to 10%, maybe 15% of people will develop symptoms after their infection uh, that are consistent with, with what other people are calling long COVID. Now, in many cases, those symptoms abate after another 8, 10, 12 months. So we, we just don't really understand what's going on there. And I think that, you know, that's why uh, I think Henry raises concern. Without having a, a better handle on what these long-term sequelae mean, uh, without having a better handle on how we might therefore treat it, um, this becomes um, the big problem when talking about COVID infections. If you think back to early on, and we talked about uh, in the old days flattening the curve because we wanted to lower the number of people that were going into the hospital acutely, this is the later-term variation on the same uh, clinical concern. We want to find some way to flatten the curve of people getting long COVID, and, and the simple way to do that seems to be uh, by not having COVID at all. Sure. Very good point. And let me, let me make a slight correction to myself. So H Henry does have those numbers in the story. He points out that um, roughly 15% of U.S. adults have ever had long COVID. And then currently, according to the CDC, it's 5.8% or about 15 million. Um, the quote I had in mind is from Imperial College London. And one of their analyses says uh, that the oncoming burden of long COVID faced by patients, healthcare providers, and governments and economies is so large as to be un fathomable um i, I suppose I, I don't again th this is just me as a layman speaking but i don't i don't know how you get from you know 15 percent of the population at some point over the last three years or so has had long covid to it's going to be an unfathomable unf unfathomable impact you know so I, I i don't know it just seems like there's just a lot we don't know about this yet i i, I think that there is definitely a lot that we don't know about that i think that um Henry raises a cautious concern, but that in other quarters, um, under the Rahm Emanuel clause, why let a good crisis go to waste? Um, hyperbole uh, is, is the measure of the day and that we have to do something. It's certainly clear that the, the goalpost has moved. Now the, the emphasis 
and, and I think Henry's probably right, right about this, the emphasis should now be on late-term sequelae of COVID because most of the acute problems um, have been addressed. We have effective therapies uh, for these individuals. Um, and as, as I said at the beginning, I think a large part of the herd was culled over the last three years. And the, 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 we're looking at we're looking at what really is herd immunity. Well, good news and bad news, I suppose, because a lot of people are no longer here to make that happen. So that's that's tragic, and I don't want to downplay that. Um, but moving forward, though, it sounds like this is some good news. Um, one final thing I want to touch on before we jump over to talking about uh, Josh's amusing st- story for the week is uh, the impact of boosters. Because um, I've seen, again, I've seen some mixed commentary in terms of how effective they're going to be for different age groups uh, and whether or not they need to be annual shots like the flu. So uh, this was uh, about a week ago, and I think it was NBC reported that the the advisory group that recommends uh, approval of the vaccines or, you know, a particular schedule for the vaccines to the FDA said they're kind of uncertain about making COVID shots or COVID boosters a yearly vaccine, primarily because they're not sure, and frankly, I guess nobody is, if this is going to show up every fall like the flu does and we're going to have to vaccinate against it, or is is it is it following some kind of different uh, trajectory year over year? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's, that's clearly the case. We don't know um, how COVID continues to Mutate. It seems that the mutations that are developing are more infectious, but less um, severe in, in, in their effect upon us. Uh, I think that we we don't know for certain which age groups are going to be affected. You know, if you want to go based on past performance, um, this is a disease that is more a problem for the immunocompromised and the elderly rather than any of the other populations, which is different uh, from influenza. And I think that um, we're going to take advantage of the knowledge that we've developed over the three years in the face of this novel uh, coronavirus uh, in in terms of the ultimate recommendation. Um, I think that the the new shots that are... um, directed more at some of the new variants will be useful to the populations that are at greatest risk. And those would again be the elderly, the immunocompromised. And I would add um, the people that have a significant self-concern to that group. Any of those people should uh, give strong thought to getting the the new vaccine when it comes out and then the next month or so. And I, and I think that that actually will be the, the recommendation, but the, for the, um, a large portion of the population, um, I don't think that there's going to be a clear pressing advantage, uh, to vaccination again, with the exception of the, of the concern about, um, long COVID. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Dinnerstein. That's why you do a podcast with a physician, everybody, because you can ask these kind of questions and get uh, reasonable answers. Um, but good news overall, I think, is is my takeaway from that. Um, yes, I, 
I think now we get to see, as I said, and now we get to see what herd immunity is like. You know, we talked about herd immunity three years ago and what percentage of the populations and had to be and so on and so forth. But I think that what goes on at the moment is really what it, uh, on a practical clinical basis, what herd immunity looks like. All right. Well, fingers crossed that uh, things stay this way because uh, I, I just couldn't bear it again, you know. All the all the sickness and death, and then the you know, shutting down entire societies. It's it's pretty uh, pretty hectic. Anyways, let's talk about why raw oysters are gross, according to Josh Bloom. <laughs> so I, I can't believe my colleague, who I know spends part of his summer on, on the shore, would have this horrible feeling about oysters. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, and I, I've noticed this with, um, at least with Josh and then with myself on occasion, is you write about serious topics constantly and you have to fact check so much nonsense that appears in the headlines. That every once in a while, you just want to write something that's for your own entertainment or even, <laughs> even kind of silly. And this yeah. is uh, Josh's recent attempt at this. So the story is called Raw Oysters, Yick and possibly dangerous. <laughs> so, so he begins, he says, uh, consuming raw oysters has been discouraged in New York and the New York area recently, thanks to the appearance of a flesh-eating bacteria. And this sounds like something out of Harry Potter, Chuck. It's called uh, Vibrio vulnificus. All right, it sounds like a spell yeah. that you cast, that a wizard would cast on you or something. Um, yeah. But anyway, funny name aside, it is actually very dangerous and maybe even deadly. I believe the condition is called uh, Vibriosis. Now, it's very rare, but if you get it, uh, you're going to have a bad time. Um, Josh goes on. He says there's been exceptionally warm ocean temperatures this summer, and this has allowed this bacteria to spread northward up to places uh, like New York. Now, I believe there's been, uh, let's see, uh, one confirmed case from someone getting this. There was, a, there was an oyster that was carrying this bacteria, and someone got it that way. But two other people got it um, from skin infections, from just swimming in water where this this bacteria was hanging out. Um, and then he asks the rhetorical question, is there anything to worry about? And he goes on to explain, um, and he's, he's careful to his credit to say, this is rare. This is rare. It's unlikely. Uh, if it does happen though, it freaks me out. And this is why I'm not going to eat <laughs> any more oysters. oysters. So I'll stop there, Chuck. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Uh, well, uh, I think that we are talking about a, a, a rare phenomenon. The concern, of course, is whether it's going to be coming increasingly less rare over time, which is why I think why um, Josh does talk about the rising water temperatures and the changing microflora of, of the planet. So if you're looking for something to be concerned about, I, I think that um, rising temperatures um, will cause the migration of bacteria the same way that they cause the migration of people uh, and, and other of God's creatures. Um, so that this may become a little bit more of an issue over time. Um, I think the... I, I, I like oysters, I got to say. There's nothing better than landing in San Francisco and going to have Hog Island oysters. I'm sorry, I have a get my bias out of the way uh, in terms of that. But then, as Josh points out, they are bottom feeders. They do filter uh, our water. 
And as a result, they can become repository of uh, bad elements. So you have to try and find um, good oysters to eat. Overall, I think this is just an interesting um, case, as we would say in medicine, interesting case. Now, you don't want to be the interesting case because that usually ends poorly for the patient. But from the medical point of view, it is fascinating to see how um, our microflora is changing um, and that uh, necrotizing fasciitis uh, can occur in, in more than one way. So that actually raises an interesting question because my the full extent of my knowledge of the, of necrotizing fasciitis is that there is a heavy metal band with that name, <laughs> and there's an episode of the show Scrubs from years ago, uh, and they're sort of making this joke, which is that the doctor knew how to diagnose it because he had watched a special on PBS the night before <laughs> about flesh-eating bacteria, and so everyone Excellent. was making fun of him for being a nerd and. Uh, you know, not being as great a doctor as he was implying. <laughs> so, so my, my, my serious question though, is how do you treat something like this? Is it antibiotics or is it a, do you need a sur- surgical procedure? What, what do you do? You, with need, something like that? you, you need both. Um, okay. So the fascia is the, is the layer of connective tissue um, that kind of holds us all together. It's part of the structural components that holds the, the skin and the fat and everything else in position. And a necrotizing fasciitis is, is an infection where that tissue um, is being um, destroyed by the microorganisms. Uh, and so you need to do a surgical procedure, which we call a debridement, to get in there and remove all the dead tissue that's present because the dead tissue provides more fuel for this uh, infectious fire. Uh, and at the same time, you need to use very uh, significant and prolonged doses of antibiotics that come with their own set of problems in order to knock down the, uh, the, the volume of bacteria present. Um, so you wind up with very large, extensive surgical wounds from removal of this tissue. Um, and that brings upon itself other problems in terms of uh, how we maintain our fluid balance and so on. If you think about uh, having to remove the skin to get to, down to the, the dead tissue underneath it, now the skin's gone, so you've lost your vapor barrier. Uh, so now we have to be giving you a lot more fluids. It's like having a, a in some ways, it's like having a third degree burn. Um, so it, it's it's a, it's a very nasty uh, disease. I would, as a as a vascular surgeon, uh, I, we didn't treat a lot of necrotizing fasciitis per se, but. Um, for many of our patients that had diabetes, they would develop similar kinds of problems with infections in their, in their feet. And there might be a little area where there was a little pimple uh, with some drainage, but the, by the time you got in there and cleaned everything out, um, they'd lost three or four toes and the, the middle portion of their foot from an infection that was just underappreciated. And, and necrotizing fasciitis can be that way. 
How's that for happy? That's a, that's, well, there you go. Right. And, and I'm actually, I was kind of wondering, I'm like, how do we turn this into a story we're talking about after Josh's jokes are out of the way? And I think that's instructive though, is that not only do you know how to treat it, but it's rare, which is good. Right. So, yes, so right. you're unlikely to get this, but if you do, we've got a handle on how to take care of it, at least for now, which is good. Um, and but I, it's a, it's a tough handle. It's a real <laughs> tough handle. Yeah. So there's that. And, and I, and again, I'd like to say one or two other things on behalf of the oyster. Yes. Um, do. And first is, is that um, at one point there were more oysters in New York than one could count. They were, we could have called New York city, the big oyster before we called it the big apple. Um, and that oysters continue to play a very important role um, in the protection of New York because as the storm surges from storms roll over oyster beds, the, they lose their force. They continue to have um, the ability to go far inland, but they don't go into in the inner parts of the city with anywhere near the force that they would have if the oyster beds weren't breaking up uh, the storm surge. And so there's been a real attempt in the last several years to bring back the oyster beds uh, of New York Harbor for just that purpose. Now, just a little odd factoid that I've gathered along the way. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Um, and and I maybe that's an important point to stress is that jo- Josh is talking mostly about how grossed out he is by raw seafood and not really <laughs> about whatever ecological impact they have or he or has even not had safety. a good Hog Island. He has not had a good Hog Island oyster. Well, that I mean that, that's one other thing we could address, and I don't know if you know about this. It sounds like you might. Um, wh- what sort of precautions are in place to prevent this? You know, so there was one comment, or Josh didn't address this in the story, but he was asking. You know, can we irradiate oysters the way we do other foods uh, to to reduce the prevalence of of you know a dangerous bacteria or viruses or you know what like whatever kind of nasty microbes they may be carrying? Do you have any insight on that? Uh, that one area you're getting way out of my area of expertise. I, you know, my experience with oysters is that predominantly the oysters I've had are farm raised, so that we know that they are coming from areas where particularly uh, pristine waters because there's a commercial interest in, in, in ensuring that that be the case. I have no idea what, how a radiated oyster would taste. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was one thing I was wondering, you know, because it wouldn't cook it, I don't think, but it may perhaps alter its, you know, alter so- something about it, you know. Um, well, I don't think the I don't think the oyster would like it. I don't think you know, <laughs> the levels of radiation required are such that the oyster is going to do well. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't know if it would if it would work on fresh fresh oysters, but I know they're 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 sold frozen in some places, and and I don't I don't know. Whatever the case, well, it's something we'll have to find out more about. But um, it's it's rare. It's just sort of an amusing story, and those are fun to write. Every once in a while. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for the week. Thank you for joining us as always. Until next time, follow us on Twitter. The organization is at ACSHorg. That's where you can send questions for Chuck or any of the other authors. Uh, I am at Cam J English. So feel free to tweet at me and ask questions or suggest topics for the show. 
and we'll be back next time.